0: A very good evening uh, to you all. Um, as I always say, if you're, normally at the, well, if you're not normally at the LSE, one way or another, welcome, and if you are, welcome too. So, um, my name's Tony Travers from the Department of Government and the School of Public Policy. This is uh, a European Institute School of Public Policy event and, as you can see, it's about Brexit, the Constitution, and the future of the United Kingdom. And, indeed, it's a lecture and a response, followed by questions and answers, uh, from, or to celebrate the launch of uh, a book uh, by Professor Vernon Bognonor on this very subject. And, indeed, there are, as you will have seen as you came in, a pile of, there is a pile of books on the way, uh, just out there, outside. And should you wish to um, purchase one, uh, then you'd be very welcome to do so. And indeed, the author will then sign them, well, one of them, well, as many as you want actually, here on the stage. Uh, at no uh, extra charge. At the end, at no extra charge, as he kindly says. Now, uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, I'm going to welcome our two uh, guests in a moment, but I'm always, I always forget to say uh, the, there's a hashtag uh, for all of this, which is hashtag LSEBRExit, for those of you who wish to tweet about it. Now, I'm just going to say um, two or three uh, words about the issue. I don't want to uh, go into subjects you're about to hear uh, in detail from Vernon about. But I just would, on a personal note, like to make the point that um, Brexit, whatever you think about it, whether you're in favour or remain, whether you're fed up with it or just love every minute of it, has inadvertently told us much about several aspects of the UK's constitutional settle, settlement. It's told, about, told us quite a lot about the way referendums uh, determine or don't government action. It's told us about the respective powers of the executive and the legislature, the role of the speaker. I wasn't expecting to see that one. Whether MPs are representatives or delegates or a mixture of the two the respective roles of ministers and civil servants, the use of secondary legislation, and on and on. There's a long list of things about which we have learned a great deal in a very short time. And it's not over yet. We will soon find out when, whether, and if, and how uh, members of Parliament find a way of getting control of the government agenda. Possibly they will, possibly not, but we'll find out very soon. And what I would say just by way of beginning this evening, is that Brexit is surely taking us towards a different constitutional settlement of some kind. The executive parliament, political parties, the courts, devolved institutions, and all the other things that I'm sure uh, Vernon Bogdanor will talk uh, about to, to us about just this, uh, in a few minutes' time. So, just to introduce our distinguished guests, uh, Vernon Bogdanor... Uh, is a research professor in the Centre for British Politics and Government at King's College London, our dear next-door neighbours, but beyond that is, he always chides me for saying this, without question, one of Britain's, if not Britain's, leading constitutional experts. Catherine Haddon, another good friend of the LSE, senior fellow at the Institute for Government and a determined watcher of not only Brexit but all things to do with the way uh, government is developing in the United Kingdom. What's going to happen is Vernon will speak for about half an hour, Catherine will then respond, we'll have a couple of questions sitting on the stage and then we'll have about three quarters of an hour for you to join in, make points, ask questions. We'll end at 8 o'clock. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Vernon Bogdanoff.
1: Well, Tony, thank you for that generous introduction, but um, perhaps it's not difficult to be a a constitutional expert in a country without a constitution. (laughs) And... uh, When I used to be at Oxford, um, my friends used to say that a constitutional expert was no more than a historian who'd given his telephone number to the journalists. Um, Now, the uh, central argument of my book can be very simply stated. It's this, that while we were members of the European Union, we lived under a written or codified constitution which was entrenched. And Brexit is a process which I think is unprecedented in the modern world of moving from a codified constitution back to the uncodified constitution we had before we joined Europe in 1973. And another uh, important feature of it is that we're exiting from a human rights regime, namely the European Union's fundamental charter of uh, uh, rights uh, into a system where rights will be less well protected. And my hope, though I admit it's probably a forlorn one, is that by showing how naked the British constitution is after Brexit, this will provide the impetus to produce a constitution in Britain so that we'll become like almost every other democracy, a democracy with a constitution. Now, Tony mentioned a number of the constitutional effects of our joining Europe. And he, in particular, mentioned the referendum. And, of course, the referendum, first referendum we held, national one, at any rate, it was in 1975 on the issue of whether we ought to remain in the European community, as the European Union then was, which we joined in 1973. Now, before that, the referendum was widely thought to be unconstitutional because Parliament was sovereign. And there was much controversy about whether we ought to have one at all. And one strong opponent of the referendum was an ex-president of the European Commission, Monsieur Jean Rey, who said in London in July 1974 that a referendum on this matter consists of consulting people who don't know the problems instead of consulting people who know them. I would deplore a situation in which the policy of this great country should be left to housewives. It should be decided instead by trained and informed people, and perhaps many thought that after the 2016 referendum. I mean, some of the arguments used against referendums bear a striking similarity to those used against the expansion of the franchise in the 19th century. Now, at a seminar at King's, my college, held shortly after the uh, referendum, the professor of European law said that the 2016 referendum was the most significant constitutional event in Britain since the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. And he said this because the referendum showed, or perhaps confirmed, that on the issue of Europe, the sovereignty of the people trumped the sovereignty of Parliament. Now, of course, the referendum was advisory, but the government had said it would be bound by the result... And although Parliament can't be legally bound by the result, most MPs have accepted it as decisive. But that means Brexit is coming about not because the government or Parliament want it, but because the people want it. And government and Parliament are, for the first time in British history, enacting legislation which they do not support. The majority of the Cabinet, which is legislating for Brexit, supported Remain. The majority of MPs, around two-thirds of MPs, supported Remain. The vast majority of peers support Remain. So the sovereign people have triumphed. And in effect, in the referendum, the people have become a third chamber of Parliament, issuing legislative instructions for the other two. So the sovereignty of Parliament is now in practice restricted, not by Brussels, by the European Union, but by the people and there are many who deplore this both on the right and on the left and they perhaps come to sympathise with the great French reactionary Joseph de Maistre, who said after the French revolution the principle of the sovereignty of the people is so dangerous that even if it were true it would be necessary to conceal it. So that's the first major effect of the whole European issue. It's possible if Europe had never been an issue in Britain, we would never have had any national referendums. It's worth thinking as an exercise of how you'd write the history of Britain since the war if the European issue had not been there at all, if there'd been no movement towards European unity. Now, the second way in which Europe has modified our constitution is that it has modified the sovereignty of parliament because of course the European community as the European Union then was saw itself still sees itself as a legal order superior to that of the member states how then can that be made compatible with the theory which says parliament can do anything it wants and to that question there are two answers the first answer given by politicians in 1972 when they passed the European Communities Bill was this. That all future legislation should be construed by the courts as if Parliament had intended it to be compatible with European legislation. Now that, of course, leaves open the obvious question, what if it can't be so construed? But fortunately, that question never arose. Now, the sovereignty of Parliament is a very different principle from national sovereignty and the two are often confused. Now, every treaty or international commitment the country enters into involves a sacrifice of national sovereignty and it's a matter for political debate how much national sovereignty you want to give up when you join the United Nations or NATO or any other organisation. It's a matter of degree. Parliamentary sovereignty is not a matter of degree, it's an absolute. Parliament can either enact any legislation it wants, or it cannot. You can no more be a qualified parliamentary sovereign than you can be a qualified virgin. It's it's an absolute. And it's this concept which caused the problems. It's peculiar to Britain. And it's one of the main reasons why we don't have a codified constitution, because... Uh, there's no point in having a constitution if Parliament can do whatever it likes. And in my opinion, the British Constitution, before we joined Europe, could have been characterised in just eight words. Whatever the Queen in Parliament enacts is law. Now, when the European Communities uh, Bill was being discussed in Parliament, leading politicians said it would not, in fact, abridge the sovereignty of Parliament. And uh, Lord Hailsham, who was then Lord Chancellor... So it was abundantly obvious, though I think nothing could be less obvious, but he said it was abundantly obvious, not merely that this bill does nothing to qualify the sovereignty of Parliament, but that it could not do so, and that parliamentary sovereignty prevailed over any treaty you choose to name, including this one. And Sir Geoffrey Howe, who was Solicitor-General, said the ultimate supremacy of Parliament would not be affected, and it would not be affected because it cannot be affected. Now, that argument was shown to be false... In 1991, when, in the landmark Factor Tame case, the judges did something which had previously been thought to be impossible, by disapplying part of an Act of Parliament, the Merchant Shipping Act. Now, that Act uh, laid down restrictions on foreign fishermen fishing in British waters, and a Spanish um, group of fishermen said this was against European uh, Community law, and the European Court said yes, it was. But the British courts also said that it was. This was inadvertent. Parliament hadn't intended to go against European communities' law, but uh, the British courts said the Parliament cannot have intended this and therefore we're not going to apply it. And this meant that as long as we were in Europe, Westminster was a legislature of limited competence. And this is very obvious when you consider perhaps the main issue behind the Brexit vote, restrictions on EU immigration Now, there are many people in the country and many MPs who'd like to see EU immigration restricted, but Parliament could not legally do that while we were members of the European Union. So, uh, as well as uh, Westminster being a Parliament of limited competence, uh, our courts were also in effect constitutional courts acting for the European Union. And the notion of a constitutional court is also something new in Britain. You can't have that, obviously, unless you have a constitution. So there was judicial review of primary legislation, a concept hitherto unknown in Britain, and a constitutional court. So the balance of power was altered when we joined Europe, away from Parliament and the executive towards the courts. And therefore, the European Communities Act was very fundamental. In the words of the majority of judges in the Miller case in 2017, the Act provided a new constitutional process for making law in the United Kingdom. It's altered what you might call the rule of recognition of British law, which is no longer what the Queen in Parliament enacts is law, but what the Queen in Parliament enacts is law as long as that is compatible with European Union law. And um, at least the sovereignty of Parliament means something different from what it meant before. And the slogan, take back control, is taking back control not just from the European Union, but from the courts, which have a lesser role uh, when we leave than they had when we were in the European Union. And therefore, I give a second answer to what we did in 1972 when we passed the European Communities Act, which is that there was a structural change in the British Constitution by which Parliament abrogated its sovereignty. And it was the judges who decided this. They could have come to a different decision. They could have said, Parliament has passed a law, Parliament is sovereign, that's it. We can't question that. That is it. But they didn't do that. So it shows the sovereignty of Parliament is a statement about what the judges would do. And for the first time... Since 1688, a court suspended the operation of an Act of Parliament and there now was therefore a body to set aside that legislation. There was a constitutional court to which Parliament was subordinate. And you may ask the interesting question, if Parliament had appreciated the full consequences of what they were doing in 1972, would they have passed the Act? Would they have joined the European community in the first place? Now, if Parliament can voluntarily limit its sovereignty in this way, this raises a very obvious question. Why can't it limit its sovereignty in other ways? For example, uh, in terms of human rights, why why can't it say the Human Rights Act should trump the sovereignty of Parliament, which at present it doesn't, or the devolution legislation? What, if anything, is special about Europe or the European Communities Act? And uh, I think that is, is an important question. Uh, to ask now I said that the um, constitution had been altered but you may ask can the judges themselves alter the British constitution what gives them the right to do that doesn't such an alteration require wider acceptance shouldn't it also be accepted by the people now I suspect the people never really accepted the undermining of parliamentary sovereignty Perhaps they might have done if we'd remained in Europe for longer than we have, for the 46 years, but I doubt if the primacy of European law ever gained widespread popular support. It didn't really have deep roots among the British public. So I conclude on this point that the, that the um, entry into Europe transformed the British Constitution. Now that was carried further by the European Union's Charter of Fundamental Rights which came into effect as a result of the Lisbon Treaty in 2008. And this draws on the European Convention, but it's quite separate from the Convention, and it has 54 articles, it's much wider than the Convention, and it includes many rights which are not in the Convention. For example, the Convention includes a right to education, but the Charter adds to it a right to health care. Uh, The Charter also has what the Convention doesn't have, I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear, a right to academic freedom. But perhaps the most important right in the Charter is the Article 21 right to non-discrimination on grounds, and I quote, such as sex, race, colour, ethnic or social origin, genetic features, language, religion or belief, political or any other opinion, membership of a national minority, property, birth, disability, age, or sexual orientation. Now, it applies only when the member states are implementing EU law, but since it's part of EU law, it means that any national laws which contravene those rights will be disapplied by the courts. Now, Britain did not incorporate the Charter in its domestic law and had what it thought was an opt-out, one of many opt-outs we had while we were in uh, Europe, and ministers said it would not apply to Britain. Tony Blair, the Prime Minister, told the Commons in 2007-08, it is absolutely clear, though nothing was less clear, it is absolutely clear that we have an opt-out from the Charter. And David Miliband, the Foreign Secretary, said, the treaty records existing rights rather than creating new ones, equally absurd. A new legally binding protocol guarantees that nothing in the Charter extends the ability of any court to strike down UK law. Even more absurd. I mean, when politicians are so confident, you're right to smell a rat, I think. And then in 2014, Theresa as Home Secretary uh, said, The Charter was declaratory only, and we do not consider that it applies to the United Kingdom. But it would have appeared odd from the EU's point of view if a country were able to opt out of fundamental rights while countries accepted them. Apart from anything else, it might mean you could gain a competitive advantage by ignoring some of those rights, which would not be fair. But the charter has been used by the British judges to do what the Human Rights Act does not allow them to do, namely to disapply parts of Westminster statutes because they are in conflict with human rights. And this is a revolutionary and little-noticed development in British government. This Power was first used in a case Ben Harbouche versus Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs in 2017, and in my opinion, the Ben Harbouche case is important as important as factor tame. Now, Ms. Ben was a Moroccan national who was employed by the Sudanese Embassy in London, and she claimed against the embassy unfair dismissal failure to pay her the national minimum wage, unpaid wages and holiday pay, as well as breaches of the working time regulations. The Sudanese embassy claimed it was entitled to immunity under the provisions of the State Immunity Act of 1978. But Lord Sumption, speaking for unanimous court, ruled that sections of the act conferring that immunity were incompatible with Article 6 of the European Convention providing for a fair trial and therefore right of access to a court. The remedy for this would be a declaration of incompatibility under the Human Rights Act, which itself has no legal effect, it's merely a statement. But Article 47 of the EU's Charter says that anyone whose rights have been violated has the right to an effective remedy. And if the Convention had been violated, Lord Sumption said... So must the Charter have been, and so he concluded that in a conflict between EU law and English domestic law, this must be resolved in favour of the former, and the relevant parts of the State Immunity Act must be disapplied. And there were two other cases on this, one of them ironically brought by two backbench MPs in 2014, Tom Watson, now Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, and David Davis later to become the Brexit secretary. They brought proceedings to secure the disapplication of the Data Retention and Investigatory Powers Act of 2014 as contrary to the Charter. And that went to the courts, which said it was, but the government then altered the law before a higher court could give a decision. But you may feel some irony that a leading Brexiteer, David Davis brought proceedings to question the validity of an Act of Parliament on the grounds that it defended against European Union principles. So the Charter revolutionised the approach of British judges to the protection of rights. Now, the Charter is almost the only part of EU law that is not being incorporated into our law when we leave. Most of our laws, EU laws being incorporated... uh, so that Parliament can decide whether it wishes to keep it, modify it or repeal it. But the Charter isn't. And the government said they will preserve the rights, but they won't have a special status because judges will lose the power to disapply legislation which conflicts with them. And you may say, well, what value does a right have if it's at the mercy of a sovereign parliament? Now the other 27 member states remaining in the European Union are of course keeping those rights and their laws on human rights are subject to the scrutiny of the courts. So you have to ask yourself the question are our parliamentarians in Britain so much more sensitive to the protection of human rights than parliamentarians in the other 27 countries that they should be entrusted with this function? And I leave the answer to that to you. Now, the um, uh, third area, sorry, fourth area where um, we're affected by leaving the EU is on the question of devolution, because um, the devolution legislation presupposed, as the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement did, that Britain would remain in the European Union. To take one example – In the devolution legislation, there are certain reserved functions like foreign affairs and defence, and any function not reserved is entirely devolved. Now, amongst those devolved functions are agriculture and fisheries. But would you really want four different systems of agricultural subsidies in Britain, particularly when agriculture is subject to trade negotiations with other countries after Brexit and the government has to assure another country that it has command of agriculture. That's one of the topics in, in negotiation. And it may be that if it had been known that we were going to leave the EU, we wouldn't have devolved, in effect, the whole of agriculture and fisheries to the devolved bodies. But the EU was, as it were, the glue that held devolution together in this way, that it ensured an internal market within the United Kingdom and, of course, within the EU as a whole, because you couldn't have different systems of agricultural protection and fisheries and so on because they were run from Brussels, so devolution was fairly meaningless. It was all run from Brussels, but that ensured an internal market. Now, that internal market uh, is unravelled. And the British government took the view, not I think um, uh, um, unwisely, that they needed some assurances the internal market would be preserved. So they're keeping some functions in those areas, not all of them, but some of them uh, at the centre. And the Scots uh, refused to agree to that, and it led to a case in the uh, courts, in the Supreme Court, which was settled, Uh, last um, December on the whole against the Scots so they won a few points but the Scots pleaded what's called the Sewell Convention that Westminster will not normally legislate on devolved matters without the consent of the devolved bodies now that had been put in statute in 2016 But nevertheless, the court ruled that this was not justiciable. They said it was an important convention, and it was what they called an entrenched convention. It's not clear to me what that means if it's not justiciable. And you may say the government has a let-out in the word normally. But at least all this puts the whole of the devolution settlement uh, in the melting pot, because uh, the Scots believe, perhaps understandably, that Westminster can at any time simply claw back powers that they thought were devolved. Now, the Welsh, who eventually reached agreement with the government, put forward an interesting proposal. They said there should be a council of the uh, nations of Britain composed of the government and the devolved bodies, and the government should need the consent of at least one of them to get its way which means, of course, that the three acting together would have a veto. So the government said this goes against the sovereignty of Parliament. We're not having that. And um, it also raises a problem which needs to be dealt with of how England is to be represented because the British government is at the same time the government of England for matters devolved to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, for example, education, health and so on. Those departments are, in effect, English departments. But can the British government represent both the United Kingdom... And England, so uh, all this has to be looked at again. Now, um, as I said at the beginning, it is uh, very rare for a gut of democracy to exit from a major international human rights regime and from a protected constitution. and the process of doing so raised, in my opinion, profound questions. That there'll be a movement back from the courts to, in theory, Parliament, but in practice, government, because government normally controls Parliament. It doesn't when you have a minority government, but normally it does. Could we be returning to the condition that Lord Hailsham identified in 1976, an elective dictatorship? So, all the, the Brexit seems to reverse the progress of British constitutional development, which seemed to be from an unprotected to a protected constitution, but it will leave open the question of how long we can remain content with that uh, situation. Now, Brexit will be a new beginning and will mark a change of regime, a 46-year regime, short regime which, during which we were members of the European Union and bound by its laws. Now, might it be that we are approaching a peaceful constitutional moment where the nakedness of our Constitution and the concatenation of interconnected constitutional problems pressing insistently for resolution cause us to think about our own constitutional arrangements, could it be the break in in continuity that will herald our own constitutional moment? I certainly hope so. Thank you.
0: Right. Um, thank you, Vernon. Uh, elegantly, perfectly timed. And now we're going to hear a response from uh, Catherine Hatton.
2: Thank you. Seamless uh, crossover there between the two of us. Um, I just wanted to start with Vernon's points earlier on about constitutional experts are uh, people who uh, get telephoned by the media. I'm afraid, Vernon, I don't think you experience this, but they are now also someone who gets stuck into debates on it, about it on Twitter, day in, day out, because that is pretty much my experience of uh, certainly the last six months, but actually quite a lot of the last two years, and seems to be the only thing that defines me as a constitutional expert. Um... That and the fact that I am also a historian. Um, So this book has has been very interesting. I think obviously very timely. uh, A lot of debates that we are having and also very useful in uh, explaining a lot of the sort of crucial issues that uh, people are trying to get to the heart of in looking at the Constitution and thinking about Brexit. Uh, Some of what uh, Vernon relates in the book is about Uh, This failure to get to the crux of the constitutional implications of membership and the initial efforts of Macmillan, Wilson and Heath governments to join, uh, that they had a more pragmatist perspective. Um, Even as the bill was passing, the concept of parliamentary sovereignty blinded them to the fact that they were giving it up. Uh, Hailsham and Howe declaring it was impossible for Parliament to bind the hands of future Parliaments. Therefore, parliamentary sovereignty would trump any treaty. Um, This concept and the idea that national sovereignty must still exist and therefore parliamentary sovereignty also, and and Vernon uh, makes an important point about how these two often get confused. You can see a lot of that in the debates and the course of the negotiations that we've had over the last uh, two and a bit years uh, of all of this. Um, And all about the discussions about how now unilaterally the UK can act in enacting the result of the referendum... Uh, we do have a historical constitution, one that grew and evolved based on tacit understandings and not necessarily deliberate li- design and uh, this idea of some kind of creative break that, that brought it into being. Uh, and it's, it's been reinvented time and again, and particularly this concept of parliamentary sovereignty. And these are still the stories that people are telling themselves today. Uh, historians MPs the media the governments they're all talking about issues about how much power parliament has on all, on a huge number of issues um, but in actual fact things have moved on as Vernon sets out in the book and there is no going back to pre-1972 uh, and I would argue that it's not just this issue about as Vernon sets out in the book the sort of the key structural ways in which the Constitution has changed and is very difficult to reverse. But it's also about how perception of the Constitution has changed during all of this period. Um, We've seen the way in which uh, successive governments glided over the tensions that might exist in giving up uh, concepts of sovereignty um, and perhaps this is partly because of the way we conceive of our constitution as some kind of ethereal, malleable thing rather than something that can be fundamentally altered. But we're now challenged into looking at this. I want to touch on some of the themes that the book delves into. I'm not going to go into all of them. as big issues around how we do referendums, whether that's the future for this country, There's big issues around devolution, human rights and so forth. But I'm going to touch on some of the ones that... Uh, affect my daily existence uh, certainly in trying to explain them. One is collective cabinet responsibility. Um, I would argue slightly differently from Vernon that uh, although this is something that perhaps we are seeing challenged more and more actually prime ministers have had the ability to flex it uh, quite often. Uh, Vernon talks about the way in which it was challenged so that and changed so that Uh, different governments, not just during the referendum but also during the coalition period, um, saw formal suspensions on it, but actually... There's a sort of deeper issue, which is about how cabinets frequently leak. This is nothing new, um, and this is fundamental to the concept of collective cabinet responsibility. And you've seen that during the course of Brexit. Boris Johnson, at times, drove a coach and horses through the idea of collective cabinet responsibility, but, but the Prime Minister allowed him to do this. On a number of occasions, he broke it by writing newspaper articles, giving interviews, setting out a position clearly not agreed at cabinet Uh, but she could always have fired him, and she chose not to. So I'd argue that it's a convention whose power partly lies in how prime ministers use it, how it becomes a tool for them to force ministers into line or to force them to resign if they do not. Uh, And it's also a tool, therefore, for cabinets in how they uh, can threaten to resign, and we're seeing that again at the moment, the the degree to which... cabinets are suggesting to her that if she doesn't for, uh, follow the course of action they want she'll get another load of mass resignations um, on the issue of the rights of the citizen this for me goes to a very interesting question about how the public the media and politicians view the constitution where do they think authority lies in it uh, this is about both who determines what is or is not constitutional but also who enforces it Has the experience of having uh, the ECJ increased the view in the public and in the media that courts can be the arbiter and a formal authority on interpretation? I'll come back to this later. Um, Also, what isn't covered in the book is the way in which Brexit has actually challenged parliaments in a number of different ways. We've seen during the process of Brexit, a huge number of conventions that are now under pressure. We have The Miller case about the triggering of Article 50. We've got a two-year parliamentary session. Uh, We've had uh, ministers misleading the House. We've had the governments routinely ignoring opposition days. Uh, We've got issues around pairing of MPs, how the humble address is being used to try and force information out of government. Uh, I can keep going on. They all collectively raise questions about whether Parliament has the tools, whether it's uh, been challenging its own rules to try and find the means to be able to navigate Brexit. But it also goes to the crux of this tension where people want a final arbiter. Uh, and saying that Parliament makes its own rules, which I keep having to sort of point out to people how it works, and, and can change them in it want, doesn't resolve this. And you see this in other uh, factors as well. One of the interesting things to me is the status of constitutional documents. Maybe Vernon and I can talk about this afterwards. It's quite interesting for me. Um, and how perception of them is changing. One is, again, Parliament and explaining what Erskine May is and how the clerks interpret it, but it's only advice. Uh, how, uh, but the other is the ministerial code and how definitive that is. This started off as literally just the Prime Minister's letter to their ministers of uh, how they should behave, but is now it, it's called a code. It's now been seen as something that has some kind of constitutional power or, or people what, seem to want it to. Um, We now have a much more formal process about how ministers get investigated when they're accused of breaching it, but ultimately it's still the Prime Minister's document and they get to decide interpretation of it and punishment. So there's all of these changes that are going on, uh, but the issue in all of this is about what do we do next? And I agree with Vernon that the UK is undoubtedly codifying in an ad hoc and unplanned fashion. The question is whether, given this ad hoc and unplanned way over so many centuries it developed its constitution, this is the right way to alter it or whether we need some more fundamental process and and need to get into that now. Certainly Brexit, alongside other changes since 1997, have left us with a very unsettled and uncertain constitution with lots of discrepancies, lots of conflicts and lots of areas that are quite confusing to explain to the public, to the media. Uh, Vernon argues in the book that uh, codification may be necessary now, maybe even unavoidable now both to tackle these constitutional uncertainties and also, as he's just said, because of the lack of protection that it now has. But the issue in all of this is not just whether or not we need to codify, but it's also about how we do it. There are various aspects of our constitution which, when we start to consider how to codify them, uh, it will bring into all sorts of questions about not just how you set out a formal process, but how much the previous constitution was dependent upon uh, concepts of behaviours and these very informal balance of powers. And the best example of that, I think, is um, the choice of a new prime minister when there is uncertainty about who can command confidence. And we've seen uh, two examples of that in the last ten years and lots of continuing debate about what might happen in future scenarios. At the moment, it depends on a degree of trust Uh, that politicians will somehow or other work it out Uh, there's a logic to it and about how the process goes but the ultimate arbiter is the Queen who the constitution suggests should never or should also never actually be asked to arbitrate because it would drag her into party politics so there's this slight discrepancy there so instead documents like the cabinet manual sort of allude to the fact that the politicians in the end just ought to be quite sensible about it so resolving these questions, thinking about what you do instead, would lead us into having to change fundamental processes. So we'd have to you know, think about, what well, do we change how we do that particular process? A new mechanism for party formation, though, then leads you into this domino effect of what does it mean for how we do overnight transitions of power in this country? What does it mean for our voting system? How does it change the process of changes of prime minister midterm? Now, this, I don't mean to say from this that, it, that codification can't be done if it has to be done, but it does mean, and Brexit's a really good lesson in this, there's big questions about how we do it. So that leads me with this final question. If, as Vernon suggests, codification is starting to feel inevitable, what does Brexit tell us about how and why we might do it? Um, is, there this, is Brexit performing this break in continuity that would allow us to move towards a codified constitution? Does it tell us that our citizens, our national parliaments and our devolved governments, our media and our courts are uh, exasperated by the status quo and are crying out to get stuck into this debate? Um, That's an optimistic view. There is another. The course of Brexit, the way we've conducted it, might also suggest that we're currently uh, not necessarily the best place to have a national debate and perhaps lacking anything like the trust in institutions to let them perform this task. We can hope that the former impetus, the idea that we now need to look fundamentally at our constitution, will reveal itself and will be as uh, something that propels people. But I fear that the latter uh, factors, the exhaustion over Brexit, will be the thing that
0: dominates. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, well, um, thank you both very much. And just um, to begin the the discussion that we're now about to have, um, I suppose the... Building on actually something Catherine's just said towards the end here, Vernon, the... I mean, you're arguing, I think, or you are arguing, that there is a moment here, that something has happened, a rare and unusual moment has occurred, that might, you hope, trigger um, a new way of thinking about the uncodified British Constitution that would lead to it being either better codified or completely codified. I'm not putting words into your mouth. Now, the question then, of, in a sense, how that might be delivered. I mean, you know, in other countries, you know, try constitutional conventions. Uh, all the kind of things that you can see other democracies try. But as far as I can see, as of today, not only is there no apparent uh, great move towards that, but second, I mean, your book, obviously, but the rest of the country are not rising up this evening. There's the people in this room, perhaps, but uh, others not. But but more than that, and Catherine makes this point at the end, the very people who, in the end, would have to draw it up are deeply, deeply damaged by the very process that the country is currently going through. they're not tr- Politicians were never much loved, but there's clear evidence they're not trusted. And yet, it, in the end, it would have to be the executive, which has remained powerful in this process, that would have to do it, unless there was some agreement to hand over the process to a constitutional convention or heaven help us experts or somebody else. So, What what steps might need to be taken to lead this moment producing that kind of profound, multi-century, in Britain's case, change the way we think and behave and act? Well, as I said, I think one impetus will be the need
1: to rationalise our devolution settlement. I think more important than that, I think people in Scotland and Northern Ireland have thought a lot about the Constitution in England, not as much. And therefore, I think before we start, we have to have what I suppose an academic would call a learning process. I think there has to be a debate and discussion. I think that's best done by an equivalent to what in the past used to be called a Royal Commission, which would take evidence, not, for heaven's sake, just in London, but around the country, to get an agenda going, to get debate and discussion about what the issues are that should be looked at in the Constitution. Then obviously experts would have to draw it up, lawyers probably. But then, of course, it would have to be put to the people in a referendum and it would probably need more than a simple majority, was perhaps a minimum turnout, but it would have to be not passed not only by Parliament but by the people. As Catherine was implying in her final comment, it can't be simply a top-down exercise and, and shouldn't be. So it would take some years... But I, I think we could begin with a charter uh, which, as it were, rationalises the devolution settlement and lays down what the principles for what powers we can devolve and what need to be kept at Westminster to keep the social and economic union going.
0: Catherine, the Institute for Government puts an enormous amount of time and effort every year into all these kind of issues. I mean, do you feel that there is an appetite or a sense or a sort of desire to use this moment to build something new
2: i think there's there's definitely an appetite and a frustration there um but i don't know whether it would translate into that kind of activity and i i mean this both on the part uh from the point of view of the public the media those that ought to be engaged with this but also actually the politicians themselves on the wherever is the, you know, other side of Brexit, whether you want to talk about sometime in the next month or whether you look at the sort of years to come of how we actually turn it into a future relationship and bring a lot of these statutes back, there's an awful lot that needs to happen uh in parliament simply to turn a lot of existing european legislation into national law and the process of working through all of that is a mammoth task you know we talk about thousands and thousands of pages worth of legislation that will need to be go through with a fine tooth comb and lots of parliamentary uh interest but the other side of this is during the whole of brexit we're seeing more and more wider domestic policy being neglected And I just don't know that any national governments at this stage, certainly in the next five years, possibly ten years, depending on what happens in the next month, um, will just have the reserves of energy and uh, the priority to do something like this when they've got the here and now of having to do all of these sort of first-order tasks.
0: Any any response to that?
1: Well, I think on the question of human rights, I think part of the problem is that people regard the Human Rights Act wrongly, in my view, as a kind of villain's charter, that it deals with people who perhaps shouldn't be very closely protected for the law. They, the public don't own the Bill of right, the, the Human Rights Act. And I think a proposal that Dominic Grieve has made would, could help remedy that. He said, paradoxically, if you had a wider range of rights, they might appeal to more people. For example, if you had a right to health care in the Human Rights Act that would affect a lot of people, make people think these rights are for us. They're not just for people who've broken the law or asylum seekers or suspected terrorists or whatever. And therefore, you get wider acceptance of the whole notion of rights and paradoxically, a greater concern for the rights of sometimes unpopular minorities. And I think that would be one way in which you'd get popular backing for human rights and greater protection of human rights. As I say, it, it does seem to me rather unusual that we trust our MPs with this important function, but most other democracies
0: don't. Related to that, presumably one possible accidental consequence of all of this is that the judiciary, Supreme Court, courts mm. in general, are more activist. Mm. As, and They they, yeah. may, mm. and they have become more activist, yes. and, and they've got mm. into realms of law that would have been unthinkable mm. Um, mm. 20, 30 years ago. And this surely, from their point of view... Yes is a an obvious place but they may decide not to and they'll, they'll argue either way within the judiciary I assume but to take the place of something which has gone Yeah I think it's an important point and I, I try to make
1: that in my book that the judges may themselves fill that gap in rights they filled in my view a gap with fact Ben karbouche. they could have come to different decisions and um, it may be that they will simply say any um, act which purports severely to limit civil liberties should be supplied for example suppose parliament passed an act as it nearly did in 2003 denying asylum seekers a right to appeal uh, if they're refused by a tribunal permission to stay now that makes the human rights act worthless because if you can't get access to the courts you, you you can't you can't access your rights now if that had been passed it was by the blair government if that had been passed Would the courts have supplied it? Would they have ignored it? It said you cannot. Parliament cannot legally deprive someone of access to the courts. I think they might well have done, and that might well happen in the future. I think if we'd been here um, 60 years ago, and if I'd said to you, look, Parliament is going to supply uh, um, an act of... Sorry, the judges are going to supply an act of Parliament, and they're going to supply an act of Parliament because it entrenches against human rights. They'll never do that. But they have, and I, I think you're right. The judges are now much more activists than they were, and they might fill this gap.
0: Okay, right, I'm going to open this now to the floor. We've got about 36 minutes, and I'd like, uh, as ever, to take perhaps two or three questions at a time, try and make them short, and um, say who you are if you'd like to. And I've got one here, one here, and... um, front of the uh, balcony there. Okay, so... um,
3: here yes you've got the
0: microphone thank
1: you can you hear me yes uh, yeah uh, my name is uh, michael wells thank you very very much you could have two very quick points do we if we don't have a con- constitutional convention and brexit happens with the irish border and potentially scottish independence do we have time that's one, you know, that might if it takes a number of years to to have a codified constitution, maybe we've not got that time. And the second point, um, Catherine mentioned that you know now the Twitter sphere is alive with comments about constitutionalism. Neither of you mentioned the digital world or digital rights. Are we not also in a, a world where the parliamentary institu- the institutions we have are kind of a little bit? They are twentieth century and before. We, we live in the digital age and so that's where the debate needs to go thank you
3: okay. uh, Veselin Dimitrov uh, from the government department here at the LSE uh, would it be possible to argue that uh, the shift from uh, a codified constitutional order to an uncodified one uh, rather than marking a return to the sovereignty of parliament would actually weaken parliament paradoxically Um, would it be possible to argue that parliament was actually stronger vis-a-vis the executive when it operated within a codified constitutional order than it uh, would be in an uncodified constitutional order and if that is true that obviously reinforces your argument that we need to replace the uh, European codified constitutional order that we would be losing with a new uh, codified uh, constitutional order within the United Kingdom very good
0: yeah, um, Mark Pettit, ex-LSE from about 30 years ago Um, more specific and current question on the existing constitution um, I'd be interested to know what the panel thinks about how Parliament will react in the next month uh, in terms of its ability constitutionally to, to stop a no deal if the Executive's line is, it's no deal, or my amended deal, or my current deal. Okay, the Executive uh, and Parliament. Um,
1: ben. Well, um, if Parliament were to stop a no deal uh, against the wishes of the government... Um, I think that would not be constitutional because um, extending Article 50 implies that we continue for longer than we might otherwise have done uh, with various expenditures in the EU. And it seems to me that can only be authorised by a government department and a minister responsible to a government department. Uh, I take the view, and I said this in an article on Sunday Times, that, of course, Parliament can do what it likes – If it wishes to adopt an alternative policy from that of the government, it has to get a new government. In other words, a sensible thing to do would be to to vote to appoint Yvette Cooper Prime Minister, Um, and then she would follow the the Cooper Bowles policy, or Nick Bowles, the Cooper Bowles policy. But um, there's a good reason why the executive, the legislature, has never negotiated a treaty. You can't, 650 people, can't negotiate a treaty. So Parliament's role in this is restricted either to accepting the deal or rejecting it. If it rejects the deal, given the default position is we leave without a deal unless it can persuade the government to um, follow a different policy. So um, I think, although I I personally remain, I'd like to see Britain remain, I don't think Parliament can take that power I, I may be wrong just to stop there I mean, yeah. that
0: does sort of beg all sorts of questions about sovereignty of parliament really doesn't it i mean paradoxically that um somehow the the famous sovereignty the mythical sacred sovereignty about which so much of this is about actually only applies when the executive allows no parliament can do what it likes but there are
1: certain ways in which it can do it it can it can it can reverse brexit can do what it likes But the means of doing some of these things must be to replace the government with another government, um, if that is its wish, which it can do at any time. It can pass a vote of no confidence in the government at any time. There was one which failed, but it can have another one. And then it can make it clear that um, Nick Bowles or Yvette Cooper, whoever it is, has a majority in the Commons for the alternative policies that they personally propose. That, it, that is the machinery by which Parliament can secure its wishes. It cannot secure its wishes by taking on an executive function of negotiating a treaty. And it's never done that. And it's not rejected a treaty since 1864. The meaningful vote cannot be as meaningful as people say. It can't, the treaty can't be amended because then it's not the one that Theresa May signed, which is the legally binding part of any anyway, withdrawal agreement. It's, it's legally binding, and if you amend it, you're untying the package and you then have to get the EU to agree to that. They're not going to negotiate with 650 people. They'll say, who is is the government of the country? Um, So Parliament can't issue an instruction, you're saying? Well, instruction has no legislative force. What do you mean? I mean, you're saying Parliament Parliament cannot pass a statute by a standing order dating back the early 18th century. Parliament cannot pass a statute involving expenditure of public money. That must come from a Minister of the Crown who's in charge of a government department, which alone can authorise public expenditure. So the argument is that Parliament should then take over that function, and the way to do it is to appoint, as Prime Minister, the person who Parliament wishes to see in that position, which it can do at any time. I mean, for example, in in uh, 1916, Parliament was unhappy with the way in which Asquith was running the government, and it decided it was going to appoint another prime minister to run the government from the same party that happens, another minister. It could do that at any time now. It can appoint anyone it chooses to be prime minister who has the confidence of the House of Commons.
2: I would differ on this interpretation slightly. I totally agree Parliament cannot do it itself. It cannot negotiate with the... Uh, EU itself, and yes, that point about uh, money orders is, is very important to this. The issue is about this question of can Parliament instruct governments, and it is important to note that most motions, the speaker said this last week, are not do not have that kind of force. You have to use particular kinds of uh, or pass particular kind, particularly worded uh, motions. Um, however, I, uh, this comes to the heart of the issue about whether or not the government recognises the sovereignty of Parliament and how it treats instructions from, from Parliament. Um, and yes, OK, it's not anything that's perhaps legally binding, and ultimately Parliament's only recourse is voting no confidence uh, in the government and replacing it or leading to a general election. However, we've seen in the humble address that the government has at times accepted that Parliament, when uh, it's so orders in a way that is recognised as being some kind of instruction, um, the government did feel beholden to obey. And and the humble address and the way in which it's now being interpreted uh, is a really crucial part of that because as far as the government's concerned with uh, FOI, with the Public Records Act and uh, other means, uh, there are provisions in that that protect sensitive government debates, the ability to be able to decide policy and so forth, the Humble Address doesn't have any of those protections. And, and the fact that within government, within the civil service, people are concerned about what is the knock-on effect of that, if there's no protection whatsoever, nothing is uh, um, can be prevented from being uh, published in this way – Suggests that it, it's showing some recognition that an instruction from Parliament is in some way definitive and that you either accept it or you resign. And Theresa May, on a number of occasions, has shown that. Now, that in itself is not binding, of course, and you could end up seeing this standoff uh, between government and Parliament on this. But uh, at the moment, there's still some recognition that that exists.
1: Well, I'm not sure we disagree. The sovereignty of Parliament can only be expressed in statute. It can't, it's not expressed in resolutions or wishes, which the government may or may not choose to accept, depending on the political vicissitudes. Um,
0: I'm not sure there's any disagreement about that, and uh, it, might, that- but it might at some point. So we must move on. I no. I started this. So no, I'll no, move no, no, on. No. But I mean, there's a, it might decide at some point. There's a sort of parla- sort of parliamentary force majeure that it, it, the executive needs to respect simply for it, the executive's capacity, the cabinet's capacity, to carry on governing and indeed to get itself off a hook that it's put itself on. Well, if Parliament wishes to
1: uh, pass an act um, preventing Britain leaving the EU without a deal, it needs to repeal the European Community Withdrawal Act, or the relevant part of it, which specifies a particular exit day which can only be altered by a ministerial order. Therefore, at any time, Parliament could repeal that act. That's what the sovereignty of Parliament means. If Parliament can, any, any day, tomorrow, uh, the day after, it can can start the process of repealing that act. It so far, hasn't done so.
0: Okay, let's move on well, to the second go.
1: question. Well, the second on question, two other yeah, questions, actually, on, on the, the scrutiny, the second yeah. on the scrutiny. Well, it's fair to say. That, um, parliamentary scrutiny has improved enormously since we joined the EU. I don't think it's necessary to do with the EU, but the development of public bill committees and, and witnesses appearing before uh, these committees, legislative committees in the House of Commons, development of um, select committees in the Lords and, of course, the select committees in the Commons. So I think, contrary to the public perception, Parliament is probably now more professional than it's ever been. It's fair to say the Commons, at least, did not carry out its function of scrutiny of EU legislation very well because it's not a very glamorous activity and no political payoff to it and that you may say is a justification for an unelected House of Lords because the experts in it were prepared to spend time on the very detailed and rather boring um, work of scrutinising EU secondary uh, legislation Um, On the first point, the only reason I didn't mention digital rights was pure ignorance and I'm not even on Twitter I don't know whether I'm ashamed to say that or proud. Um, I mean, you're right that, I mean, this isn't a key issue. I mean, someone once said the hills aren't alive to the sound of Dicey. That's certainly true. And I don't, on the whole, share your view, I think, that Scottish independence is a likely outcome. I think, it, I think Brexit paradoxically makes Scottish independence less likely because Scotland would be cut off from the internal market of the United Kingdom if it wanted to join the EU. It would not benefit from the rebate that Margaret Thatcher negotiated in 1984 and if it wished to join the euro it would have to reduce its budget deficit from around 8% of GDP to 3% and the austerity programme required to do that would make George Osborne look like Santa Claus um, <laughs> so uh, I, think, I think Scottish independence is less likely and uh, a poll in um, the spring of 2018 showed uh, only 21% in Northern Ireland for Irish unity and only 46% of the Catholic population. The favoured option of the Catholics was power-sharing devolution. However, it is possible that if we left without a deal and the nationalist population in the North felt cut off from the nationalists in the South, that might, it's true, increase pressure for Irish unity. But with a deal... It's probably less likely partly because of the dreaded backstop which links Northern Ireland with the Republic in the internal market of the EU. And Northern Ireland gets an extraordinarily good deal out of the backstop as the um, uh, business people and farmers in Northern Ireland appreciate, but the DUP are not always governed by logic.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, briefly on that, then the question was about whether we have time for these additional things given that. I mean, again, for the reasons I said earlier about... All of the things that are missing from government's current agenda, from parliament's current agenda, I think that's true. And uh, the question of devolution intergovernmental relationships, the way in which Westminster governments successively have approached uh, things like the Joint Ministerial Council and various uh, devolution mechanisms... Um, has been exacerbated greatly by the process of Brexit. They're only more recently with David Lidington actually starting to have a good dialogue around this, and it's leaving out a huge load of questions that will have to be resolved one way or another, irrespective of of what happens in the next month. On the digital age, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think you've seen that in the uh, DCMS Select Committee's report this week, Uh, But also, going to to Vernon's point about human rights and the different ways in which that play out, with with digital rights, we're seeing it in all sorts of different areas as well. It's there in GDPR, but it's also there in child protection. Uh, So it's not just something that will come up through uh, whatever form of human rights legislation we end up with afterwards. But the important thing is that, again, as we've seen with the DCMS and their inability to get Facebook to sort of come to the committee is it also depends on international cooperation uh so we're going to again as part we're not just going to be looking at trading relationships we're not going to be just looking at, at customs and so forth we'll also be looking at how we do those kind of relationships as well um was there a, have we missed a question or do we just jump around so much we,
0: i mean the, the codification question blastin's question i mean um, Do you think the lack of codification could lead to a demand for more codification paradoxically or the removing away from a codified... I
2: completely agree that we're going to see more and more incremental changes that harden the constitutional status of existing things and get us into new areas where... I think if we're starting to look at, okay, what do we do in this area, there's a good chance that we end up with legislation rather than... I mean, you can't really imagine somebody now saying, well, this is a huge problem for us. What should we do? Should we do a piece of legislation or should we just write a guidebook for people? I can't really see us doing that. So I can think that in in more and more areas we will see a hardening. But it just feels at the moment that uh, it will still be a process of incremental changes. There may be a tipping point... um, but I don't
0: know. Okay. Some more questions, please. Right. Um, there. One there. And, um, Lady up there. Lady up, up there. Thank you. That's very good. And then um, right at the back there. Okay. So. Um,
1: I just, I think both panellists have referred to the the role of the devolved administrations and the, and the need to sort of codify to what extent this is still debated isn't there an obstacle to some extent that a codification is seen as ever closer union, mm-hmm. which is going to be difficult to get buy-in from uh, Scotland and Northern Ireland because whilst there might be an appetite for power sharing and devolved there isn't necessarily appetite for what could be perceived as something that's going to tie them ever closer, particularly if it's
4: seen as top-down from England.
0: So that the uncodified arrangements the UK has actually allowed this dispersal of power and, okay, very good. And one at the back there, yes.
4: Hi, yeah. Uh, um,
2: my question was on the incremental change and sort of the legal constitutionalist arguments and What what role will there be for the judiciary, and how far, like the experts, think they'll have a hand in constitutional reform?
0: Judiciary and constitutional reform, and where was the third question? Somebody will remember. Right at the back there, that's right. Is that right at the back? Wait a minute. Two microphones are now heading towards you.
3: Thank you.
2: um, a bit more about the past, about the impact that the EU's had on the Constitution. I just really wanted to ask, looking more into the future, um, Brexit was kind of one of the main reasons was England wanting independence from the EU. And I was wondering, do you think once we've left the EU, will this have a revival of English nationalism or any impacts on devolution within the UK? And also just any changes on English votes for English laws, for instance?
0: Okay, great. Uh, right. Um, There's that last question. Good, good
1: question. And um, Englishness is very much associated with Brexit, you're right. And you may argue that Brexit is the form which English nationalism took. But Scottish nationalism, Welsh, Northern Irish nationalism, to some extent, took the form of seeking devolved institutions. England did not seek devolved institutions. It sought to leave the European Union... You're also right that there's an English question about devolution and um, I don't think it's met really by English votes for English laws, which I actually think, frankly, is a rather silly idea and I don't think anyone living in Sunderland or Penzance says, oh good, England's now properly represented because we have English votes for English laws. But I think the so-called Northern Powerhouse, which George Osborne initiated, does have the potential to deal with Englishness because the English problem is in part an imbalance between London and the rest of England. And I think the metro mayors created by the powerhouse, the northern powerhouse, there are now, I think, seven of them. Um, and I think one-third of England is now governed by directly elected mayors. I think that um, uh, is, is uh, a great progress. And it, it raises a number of questions. First of all, London, if the mayor of Manchester has Greater Manchester has power over skills and health care, why not London? And also, what about those areas that aren't part of city regions, that aren't Greater Manchester or West Midlands? I mean, where I come from, originally Oxfordshire, which has a two-tiered local government system, perhaps may not want a mayor. Should they have devolution? I think that's unfinished business. And I think that would help to um, bring a sense of Englishness in the form of local patriotism to bear. On the second question about judges, I think—I mean, judges obviously would be involved in a constitution, lawyers and so on, but they, shouldn't, they should be, as in Churchill's famous phrase, on tap and not on top. They shouldn't be, um, they, they, they shouldn't be deciding, but they should be helping to form opinion, uh, particularly, I think, in England. And on, on the question about devolution, I mean, devolution is a unionist proposition. It's designed to maintain the union and not to dissolve it, to prevent dissolution of the union. Now, of course, there are parties in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland who wish to dissolve the union, and they are perfectly entitled to put their position. Obviously, if they get a majority, the union will be dissolved. But as long as um, the union remains, we need to consider what principles we need to hold a social and economic union together. Let's take one example: Is it fair that students in Scotland who go to a Scottish university don't pay student fees? Where students elsewhere do and students from Wales, England or Northern Ireland who go to Scottish universities do pay fees. I mean, you know, there's a certain aspect of rights to this and the reason, for example, that Anar in Bevan created a national health service and not separate Welsh and Scottish and Northern Irish health services was you know, the question of your need doesn't depend on where you live but how ill you are and it, it, whether you're ill in Wales or England or Scotland irrelevant the, the question is what care do you actually need and he said sheep don't change their character when they cross the Welsh border and so you know, someone ill doesn't become more or less ill when they cross the Welsh border and if a certain provision is right uh, then it should be right across the country and I think there's certain matters on which we, we hold to that view for example I think most of us would say it was wrong that the old age pension should be devolved in different parts of the country and, and I think we have to draw a line between what the social and economic union requires as well as the constitutional and political union. I mean, I'm very unhappy about the fact that Scotland alone lowers the voting age to 16, not because I'm against it. I'm in favour of lowering the voting age to 16, but I thought, think it should be done for the whole country, uh, not, in, uh, not for one unit out of, uh, out of a number. But, um, it's a matter of basic
0: rights. You're really then arguing for moving to a more codified constitution of what would be without question a unitary state? No. So, well, it, wouldn't no, be, no. it doesn't sound like a federal constitution, what you're describing. Well, it sounds um, quite the opposite.
1: If you, if you live in, in uh, Germany, for example, uh, certain things are held to be the responsibility of the federal government. We've devolved much more income tax than the most um, liberal federal government, for example... Switzerland, uh, the federal income tax is 12, 12.5% of federal uh, income taxes at the federal level. We've devolved almost the whole of income tax to Scotland and Wales, which I think was a grave error because it means that Scottish and Welsh MPs have much less of a role than they did. Now, I'm strongly in favour of devolution, strongly in favour of devolution, but uh, I, I want also to hold the union together, and um, I think we need to work out what principles are needed to, to, to do that and um, some, sometimes we do things in an ad hoc way in a panic I think after the Scottish referendum and are certain obligations which I think need to be held in common in a unitary state now, we'd all agree with that on certain matters surely for example on, on race relations and things of that sort most of us would say that about the right to an abortion we think it's wrong that, that should, most of us I think that in Northern Ireland um, you, can, uh, you, you cannot get an abortion uh, on the National Health Service so you have to travel at your own expense, and pay to secure one, either in the Republic or this, the rest of the United Kingdom, uh, I, I think most people would say that's something that shouldn't be devolved. And the question is, where do basic rights end, and where does devolution begin? And that's a question we haven't discussed much.
0: Okay.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, on that, uh, I won't get into all of the stuff you've t- just been discussing, because you both... Uh, Very good on it. I would say that um, successive governments have had very inconsistent policies towards devolution. We've seen so many different things tried. Uh, You know, the mayors now seem to be uh, the model that that we're going towards, but obviously we've had, you know, efforts towards regional assemblies and others, and I think that's part of the issue with with all of this when it comes to uh, regional devolution, um, I think on this question, though, about ever closer UK union and the impact of codification, the interesting one for me, and I'd be keen to hear Vernon's thoughts on this, is the Sewell Convention, because that's one where you may, uh, you know, is it in Scotland's favour to want a hardening of the Constitution when it comes to that, seeing as it it's basically ignored. Um, but if... Doing so, would they want a different uh, convention? So how, when you've got that argument between the two of them about it... Uh, would we end up with? Where would we end up in terms of a hardening of that part of the constitution? The one thing I'd say about uh, devolution and all of this is the interesting thing is how uh, Brexit as a whole has changed Parliament. We're seeing this week obviously changes to the party, uh, but actually there's deeper, longer changes that have been happening. And one is the role of the SNP, who are now. Uh, the third party in uh, Westminster, and that's led to some big changes, or, you know, it's, it led to some important uh, effects in terms of their role across the different parliamentary bodies, including select committees where they have seats on all of them, even if they are areas that are uh, devolved uh, like education. Uh, and if I can give you my top nerdy fact for the week, uh, seeing as constitution is in the title, the... Um, uh, the departure of uh, seven uh, Labour MPs this week has actually led to uh, the Labour Party losing a seat on delegated legislation uh, committees and the SNP gaining one. So,
0: that is a very, very, nuts yeah. the kind Can of I thing...
2: Can I, I give one
1: related. other example on devolution? The Scottish Government has paid for the free university tuition by cutting 150,000 places in further education... Now, uh, if people don't have the skills in Scotland that they have in the rest of the country, is that a purely Scottish issue or is it a national issue? You see, the reason that um, education and health were centralised in the 20th century was that uh, uh, people weren't happy with uh, local provision of health service, which varied from place to place. This is why we had a national health service rather than the local system we had before the war, Is skills a national issue, the lack of skills a national issue, or is it a devolved issue? This is something perhaps we ought to think about.
0: Right. Okay. One more round of questions, we think. Now, I'll come back to you down here. Let's take one, at least, from the balcony. We need to get some. Okay. Right in the middle there. Remember the hand up? One. Blue shirt person here and lady with the red top. I'll come back to you. I'll take a fourth one, the lady there as well, also in the red top. Okay. Am I right in thinking that uh, when the government lost even by over 200 votes uh, on the specific deal, in the past, that would have been regarded as a vote of no kind, yeah, yeah. issue of confidence yeah. in the government, and the government would have had to uh, uh, resign. Uh, do you think that um, in your codified constitution, uh, would you go back to that at uh, that uh, convention, yeah. or, 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 or would you continue with it now? Okay, that's one. Take the blue man on the blue shirt, yeah. On the question of judges not giving up their uh, relatively newly
1: uh, found powers... Um,
0: hold the microphone at a right angle. Um,
1: after the master treaty, they were able to you know, get a hold of... Uh, a. a, a, a
0: sorry, it maybe not be your fault, shout at it. Um, after the Master C they were able to you know get a tag to, to um, take on their new powers. After the <laughs> shout gone. <on. laughs> The judiciary, you're talking about. So how will the judiciary keep on... Get. I mean, if they try to evolve new powers, how will they keep them? Okay. And there were two other questioners. Uh, the lady here and... Oh, you've had... There and then here. Okay.
4: Hello. Hi. Um, yes, I was hoping that you could explain to me um, or just give me your thoughts something about the, cons- the, um, the implications of citizens, people who've been citizens of the European Union for many years, going back to being subjects, um, subjects of an ancient monarchy. Um, It seems to me that this is something that also hasn't happened since 1688, and yet nobody's talking about it. And um, the thing I find most astonishing is that people of this country can vote by quite a narrow majority to take away the citizenship of millions of people. I mean, I find that absolutely astonishing. And most Remainers, you know, many Remainers like me feel exactly the same about it. And then, of course, Theresa May at the, at the Tory party conference called a Citizens of Nowhere, um, and I, I think lots of us would rather be citizens of nowhere than subjects of an ancient monarchy. And, and you, <laughs> thank you. And you've you've touched on um, devolution and the implications for um, you know the, the devolved uh, administrations. But what about the implications of um, millions of people in England too, um, and possibly in Wales now as well, who who just kind of feel. Uh, you know, we, we don't identify with this with this polity. And would the constitution have to look at that as well? If we had a new constitution, would it have to look at uh, whether we want to remain in a monarchy or do we want
0: to be citizens? Okay, two excellent questions for one. Thank you very much. Here too, and then yes, thank you.
4: We've seen some interesting changes in the um, role played by the Speaker recently. How far do you think that will stick, and how would you see it developing?
0: Absolutely, I mentioned the Speaker. I'm fascinated by that. Okay, right. Um...
1: Well, the Speaker's oh, no. made a number of controversial decisions. I, I think they'd be less controversial if it was thought that he was, if it was not thought that he was doing so because of his own political views. And a speaker like the Queen should be neutral. And I hope this doesn't continue, because if it does, when the speakership election comes next time round, uh, MPs won't ask who's the best for the job, but which speaker will be most likely to support the political party that I'm in. And that would be, I think, a a bad thing. I, I think the speaker has been wrong, not necessarily in the decisions he's made, which may be the right ones, but in allowing it to be thought that he's he's a remainer, and therefore that these
0: decisions may have been influenced by his political views. You should hold on just a second. I want to ask Catherine to take that particular issue because it is a it is a very visible one in the public discourse at the moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, to some extent, I agree, I agree with Bernard that the the biggest issue is what <clears throat> implication it has for a future majority government. Uh, in you know when we have another speaker election because that 's the big change that 's happened here in terms of the process of choosing a speaker um, and and that 's the potential area of what what does this imply for how future governments might treat uh, the election of a speaker? Um, uh, John Burko would argue that his role is to protect minorities and the, to make sure that the House has time to debate, and this is a hugely important uh, Area on which the House has a view, and that therefore his decisions have been part and parcel of that. But I agree, it's this issue about the perception of that role that's uh, that's quite crucial about it. And I think also it's just really drawn people's um, eye to it. Again, it goes to everything we've been talking about today: having to explain to people that the Speaker is effectively a force unto themselves, that they can interpret the rules of the House, uh, make speakers' rulings from the chair. Uh, create new precedent and re- reject previous one. Uh, you know, these are all areas. But they aren't, in. you know, across all aspects of, of Parliament. Uh, and he, you know, only... I think it was last week. I sometimes forget which week anything happened. It all sort of, you know, <laughs> comes into one. But I think it was last week. Uh, he uh, made a ruling which was uh, not a formal ruling. He, he, uh, there were all sorts of points of order about... This very question about when does the house instruct Uh, and he was very clear on that stuck to the rules and to a position that was you know effectively in favor of the government that a motion is only the expression of the house's will and instruction has to be by you know specific mechanisms so uh, you can look at individual uh, rulings and interventions that he's made and judge them in terms of their contribution to the efficacy of the debate and so forth but it's, it's the issue of how the current governments are viewing them and what impact that has for future parliamentarians, which is something that uh, Parliament itself needs to consider and make sure it, it thinks about how it can protect this in the future.
0: OK, now back to the... Well, uh, the,
1: the lady who asked about um, being a subject and a citizen and so on, and um, on the advantage of a constitution, it would lay out your rights and I suppose from that point of view you you could see yourself more as a citizen and not a subject and lady had worries about referendums and there you do I I agree, you need rules about referendums um, and it would be better to have that in a constitution rather than an ad hoc way to be used at the discretion of the government when it wants one and so on we've got that to some extent in Northern Ireland Um, no, no, it's at the discretion of the minister when he calls one I think if it appears to him or her, that there appears to be a desire for Irish unity. That that may not be enough. Um, how the judiciary will um, operate? I think the judiciary may simply disapply legislation or part of legislation which they think entrenches on rights. They could say, I gave the example of um, um, a bill which denied access to the courts, and the judiciary may say, "Pardon, cannot do that." I mean, uh, simply cannot do it. We don't recognise no, the rule of law. Trumps. Trumps it. Um, they they would have the the final say. Um, The the gentleman who asked the point about the issue of confidence said, absolutely right, Um, and the Fixed-Term Parliament Act is the villain here, because before that you could attach a confidence vote to any major policy issue. Indeed, any major policy issue would be regarded as a matter of confidence. Now, under the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, there has to be a specific vote of confidence. Now, in 1972, Edward Heath said that the second reading of the European Communities Bill was, an act of, was a matter of confidence, and if it was lost, he would seek a dissolution. And that was passed by eight votes. And you may say, if it hadn't been a matter of confidence, would it have been passed at all? In 1993, John Major was defeated on the social chapter of the Maastricht. He's a, uh, his opt-out on the social chapter of the Maastricht Treaty. He came back the next day and said, it's a matter of confidence, unless this is reversed... I will seek a dissolution, and the rebels came to heal. Now, Theresa May could have done that on the deal. She could have said, and indeed would, I think, have to have said, that it was a matter of confidence. If the deal is defeated, I shall uh, go and seek a dissolution or resign. And that may either have brought the rebels to heel or she would have been defeated with the consequences that I've mentioned. But as it is, Parliament has got itself in a bind because it's rejected a major item of government legislation, which in a way is central to its programme, It's also rejected a no-confidence vote against the government. So, I mean, the government hobbles on but can't get its major policy through, which is not sensible. I'd repeal the fixed-term Parliament Act tomorrow. I think it's one of the silliest pieces of legislation we've had, forced on the Conservatives by the Lib Dems, it's worth saying. Uh, There was going to be, it shows the way the House of Lords worked, the former Cabinet Secretary, Robin Butler, Lord Butler, proposed a sunset clause so it would end in 2015 and thought he had enough votes from the crossbenchers to get it through but a number of crossbenchers found a dinner engagement on the night concerned. They can't be whipped, and so it didn't get through. Otherwise, it would have ended in 2015.
2: Um, On this point, uh, the the questions uh, on uh, returning, uh, going from citizens to being subjects, and, and, and all the the points that you brought up around that, I mean this goes to what I was, I was talking about in terms of how much trust there is in political institutions at the moment and whether that allows us to have this kind of constitutional debate. I think it will come out of the specific things that happen to put brexit into to practice, and that 's a very good one to to raise um, but i, uh, I don 't have a particular answer for you i 'm sorry. Um, Uh, uh, But I think it's one of those ones that will just run and run, I'm sure. This, uh, one of my favourite topics, uh, even over the course of Christmas with my family, uh, is the question of votes of no confidence and the role of the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. I actually think that the convention, in a sense, hasn't ceased to exist in as much as uh, it's, uh, you know, entirely possible for any Prime Minister to say, I personally consider this a matter of confidence and I will resign uh, tomorrow if you don't pass it. They can do that. What they can't do is unilaterally. Naturally, call a general election as a result of it. They can put down a motion for two thirds of the House to um, uh, vote for a general election uh, they can put down a motion of no confidence in themselves but they're unlikely to do that um, uh, well I mean you never know these days um, but in theory the convention could still exist it's just uh, as with all conventions it involves people continuing to recognise it and to use it and for it to have practical purpose I think the fact that Theresa May the day after the, the or immediately after the loss said people may see this as you know implying I've lost the confidence of the house therefore Jeremy Corbyn bring it on um, but uh, she did then pass this vote of no confidence. The problem with that, I, I completely agree there's huge problems with the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. Don't get me started on what happens during the 14 days if a vote of no confidence has been lost. But in this case, the issue is you've got a minority government but there's balance of power that exists that's, that the government can continue on uh, through a vote of confidence and yet, as as Vernon said, not get its legislation through. And, uh, but that is about the specific arithmetics of the House at the moment and the way in which that's playing out. It's also worth noting that historically a lot of times, yes, there are cases where they would uh, Prime Ministers would turn around and say, this particular vote I consider a matter of confidence. But actually, a lot of times the voter confidence would happen the next day um, uh, because of the loss of a big vote or something. So, in that sense, some form of the convention still exists. It's just that people don't really know how it could work best. And I, I agree we need to relook at the Fixed Term Parliament Act. It is for others to say whether we can repeal it, whether you can put a prerogative power back into play, or whether we'd need to sort of change it to something else. But I will defer to Vernon on that because I don't like to bring the Queen into it. <laughs>
0: She has been dragged into it on and off recently, hasn't she? I mean, no fault of her own. Look, we've got to stop, I'm afraid. Um, Just to to conclude, before I thank our uh, speakers, one one is, I think, as I was opening it out at the beginning, there's no question that Brexit really has allowed us, encouraged us, made us think very hard about a whole range of uh, the cogs and wheels and so on within the British constitutional arrangements and will do for some time to come. Uh, listening to this evening's debate, it occurs to me that in addition to the Constitution, and that the one might embrace the other, but the question of parliamentary procedure and how that is um, maintained, managed, how the Speaker's role has changed and all of that is another thing, may or may not be covered by a constitution, actually, but as a freestanding subject, it's come out to me even more than normal this evening as something we all need to think rather more about. My third thought is Europe's influence on British politics. Politics is not going to go away very soon, (laughs) is it? Um, And uh, last but not, not least, that the way in which the four nations of the United Kingdom fit together or don't fit together is itself absolutely unfinished business and how England fits with the other three nations to make the United Kingdom. Again, all of that's thrown up in the air uh, by this discussion tonight and indeed by the question of Brexit and the future of the Constitution. So um, on that, I'll just finish by thanking Catherine Haddon who has come this evening and acted as a fabulous respondent to Vernon's book, Vernon Bogdanoff's book. So a round of applause to both of you.